right, folks. Thank you for tuning in to the Bucks of America podcast, the cooking edition. My guest tonight is Brandon Waddell. He is the, the man, the myth, the legend behind the Mountain Archery Fest. Thank you for tuning in from our, from Wednesday's episode. This episode, I have no idea what Brandon has up his sleeve, but I am definitely excited about it because, as everybody knows, I like to eat and I like to post a lot of my food on Instagram and, and Facebook reels and stuff so you can find all my recipes. I will, I'm actually just going to turn the mic over to Brandon and let him talk about his recipe. Well, let's see. You were going to give me a cut of meat. What cut of meat are we working with here? Or do I get to choose? You get to choose. The guests always get to choose because this is something that you get to share with your friends and your family that you you very find appreciative to share. Like some people like to share mountain lion or goat or speed goat. Something that is stuff that you like spreading that, that love, that show everybody and bring people to the table. Sounds good. So now I got a little bit of background in cooking. I was actually a chef for 15 years prior to becoming a trucker. So I've got a lot of background there working for a one-star Michelin chef for a little while. And, and within that time frame, I was able to learn a ton about butchering meat. And so that was something that really helped my success in the field. Um, when I became a wild game hunter, you know, I have this killer I have a killer walk-in. I have a killer butcher kind of section in my in my walk-in, and um, that's something that I take a lot of pride in. Is first off is just my meat care from the field all the way to the plate. I'm extremely anal, if you will, even take a lot of pride in that part of the process, and it means a lot to me um, seeing that finished product come to fruition, especially when you're creating dishes that are sometimes for people who are not uh, wild game eaters, right? So for me, you know, this started many years ago. I started something with, with my nephew, Jacob Gonzalez. We, we kind of came together. He was really interested in, in learning how to cook. And so I gave him his first book called La Repertoire, which is a, a Bible of sauces and things to, and soups and things that really kind of help you understand the science of food and the creation of the things you need to do. So for me, like a little bit of a review, we used to cook, we started with about 10 to 20 people. And then quickly this became 60 to 100 people. And we were then turning around and looking for people to give us meat so that we could actually pull this all off. I'll give you a quick rundown of, of, a, of one of our shot caught and trapped barbecue menus. And then maybe you can ask me if there's one in there that you want to know. Okay, so uh, smoked elk butt with cherry almond cabernet sauce, venison and adobo with apricot chili chutney, which is one of my personal favorites, uh, bear broths with chipotle mustard, Oaxacan caribou with onions and bell peppers, moose red chili enchiladas, smoked bear ham and beans with saffron coriander goat cheese, smoked venison green chili pastole, Cajun boil with crawdads and elk summer sausage, Fresh-caught yellowtail ceviche, fresh-caught grilled halibut with seared pineapple salsa, cheap chorizo tacos, tequila lime mountain goat tacos, and then I did have someone who was extremely allergic to most spices, so we did just a simple grilled elk T-bone with fresh apricots and a vegetable kebab. One thing I did leave out of there, I had, let's see, we did a couple others in there. We did elk meatballs with sun-dried tomato marinara, tom cow soup with grouse and rabbit, spicy gluten-free duck fried rice, smoked bear pasole with green chili, bear ham with pineapple spice glaze, 
uh, grilled elk horn with tomatillo sauce, herb crusted venison with horseradish sauce, braised wild boar and red wine sauce with grilled polenta, and wild duck dusted in chocolate with pork soaked cherries and roasted root vegetables. Holy cow. Now, one that I left off of there that I've actually have a recipe that's been published in the Wilderness Attitude Cookbook is a coffee spiced bear loin with a Coca-Cola glaze. Um, that's an interesting one uh, that kind of puts a spin on a few things. But um, So the two that really caught my eye, because one, nobody's ever talked about bear, and two, nobody's, nobody's ever talked about caribou. Whatever, which one you which one you want to start with first to finish with, that's up to you. But I want to know more about these because but that bear with with uh, coffee sounds intriguing. So the bear with coffee is really, it's a pretty simple recipe and I can get you a full listed recipe for you to throw in. I can kind of describe it. I don't have it recited off my memory, uh, but I can get it to you listed so that you can throw it up with the podcast and show them. The premise around the, the bear loin is to create a really robust, savory meat and then finish it with something that has some life and and sweetness to kind of counteract that a little bit. For the most part, I take a bear loin. I hang my bear for two to three weeks before I butcher it, okay? And then I cryovac it, I'll pull it, I'll let it wet age for a week, pull it out, let it dry, bring it to room temperature. I will fat it down, get it dry, I'll coat it in simple yellow mustard. Simple rub around with yellow mustard, and that's the foundation of how I start anything that I'm gonna add any real red meat, I do a mustard kind of cover, okay? So uh, then from there, I do a spice blend that is ground espresso, chili powder, uh, dried mustard, garlic powder, onion powder, smoked uh, chipotle, uh, black pepper, salt, and that's it, okay? Pretty sure that's it. Blend that together, I coat that meat in it, cake it on really good on that mustard and uh and let it dr- firm and dry up and you'll actually see that seasoning kind of get wet pull it'll start pulling itself into that mustard and into the meat just a little bit wait for that to happen i grab a blackened skillet olive oil bring that skillet up to temperature smoking olive oil and i pan sear it in the skillet on all edges ends all the way around and you know you're talking a good chunk of bear loin, right? Nothing, a nice big healthy cut. It can be long, it can be whatever, but you know you're talking four inches round and thick. So I sear that all the way around, and then I throw it in in the oven, and I bring it to 145 to 148 degrees. Now, first thing you're gonna say is bear's got to be cooked to 160. Well, it will cook to 160, okay? But at 145, I pull that meat. And I let it pull it out and I let it rest. While that's resting, then I crank up my Coca-Cola glaze, which is very simple. It's uh, brown sugar, some lemon juice, some seasoning, and some Coca-Cola. Really, really simple and really a lively sauce. While that bear is resting, I can I got a thermometer in it, and while over the course of 15 minutes, that bear is gonna run right up to 160. Okay, and all it's gotta do is make that mark in the center right so as soon as it hits 160 resting i slice it up it'll be pink in the middle nice medium you'll think it's you think you shouldn't eat it but it's all about the temperature and uh and that robust coffee glaze and that espresso and those couple flavors of chilies 
and the foundational flavors of your garlic and onion and your little bit of, and your mustard sets the platform for the most savory meat you've ever eaten. And bear is absolutely delicious. Now, coastal bear, not so much. But any inland bear will do you just fine on this recipe, right? Then a little bit of that Coca-Cola glaze over it, and you will find yourself the best balance of wild game flavor and the robust, savory blend of spices and that little bit of glaze to kind of set it all off. And it's absolutely amazing. Question to you is how would you put every all this together? Like how did you figure out this was this was gonna taste good? Well, the rub is something that I spent years kind of making. I, you know, a um, little bit of this, a little bit of that, working on smoking pork loins and, you know, and just different red meats, pork, beef, things like that. And so applying it to wild game was an, is a no-brainer, right? And um, long before coffee rubs became a thing, it was something that I loved. Now, it comes from... When I was a young chef, I had, a, I had a chef that I worked for, and he was trying to quit chewing, but he was grinding up espresso, and he was dipping grinds in his mouth. And one day, he's like, you got to try this, right? And so, and so I did, and I liked it. And I'm one of those guys, you know, where in the grocery stores where they dispense their own beans, and there's tons of beans in the tray. Like, I'm the guy that goes by this the tray out, grabs a handful, and I walk around the supermarket eating coffee beans like they're raisinettes. And so I've always had this passion for coffee being a flavor on top of my meat. Now, the Coca-Cola glaze is something that I came across with, you know, you, you, people use Sprite or they use different things as a marinade or uh, and different things. And so I just kind of thought to myself, you know, I wanted to make a glaze, but I wanted to kind of have a cool ring to it. So I was like, you know, I can make a, a Coca-Cola, you know, like, and, and I don't drink soda. Like, let's just get that out there. Like, I, I think soda, uh, you know, if I, I'm going to tell you this recipe's great, but then I'm going to tell you that I think soda's kind of like poison. Uh, it is. But, uh, but this Coca-Cola glaze is, you know, you're just going to have it once in a while. I don't think you're in any harm's way. But I think that it just works. And that caramelization of the soda, uh, and I use the sugar kind, not the imitation or the diet or nothing. I just use real sugar cane soda. Um, you can use a brand of any kind, but just, you know, something that's in that Coca-Cola fan. And, and it just works out really good. And it's got that, just that liveliness to the citrus and the sweetness from the Coke and a little bit of sugar, and a little more brown sugar to kind of round it out, make a good glaze. And a couple spices in there that'll just kind of set it up. And it just is great. I don't know. You know, I just, as a chef, I experimented with a lot of stuff, Jeff. I, I've made stuff that I've eaten and I was like, that's going in the trash. Like, that's <laughs> awful. Right? And yeah, then it does have been there. Yeah. Down and then you hit home run, you know? And I think that, uh, I think that that's just something you got to think about when you're making stuff. Now, when it comes to your wild game that you've worked really hard for, that's hard to do, right? You don't want to make wild game that you're going to throw away because you made a sauce that sucks. So, you know, try it on some hamburger, try it on, you know, try it on some lower level meats, experiment in ways that aren't going to be as costly to you. Right. I think that that's just something that's super important. And I think that, uh, I was going to see if I actually, I thought maybe I had that recipe. I was just thinking, I wondered if I had it, I'd taken the pictures of that, not, 
that long ago, but I'll get them to you so that they're posted on there. So, you know, and, it, and that can pair with just about anything. Great root vegetables is what I like to put with it. Some turnips, some rutabagas, some beets, yams, you know, just uh, coating those in some olive oil, salt and pepper, a little bit of thyme, rosemary. I mean, you can kind of cheat with just like a sprinkle of Italian seasoning. And I think that's awesome. Parsnip mash. Uh, you can take parsnips and boil those down like you would potatoes. It takes a little bit more to cook them. But, and then uh, I don't know if you're familiar with what a ricer is. It's a sieve that you basically, it's like, have you ever seen like the, um, how people used to do flour through a mill to make it fluffy yes. and whatnot? So a ricer is just a bigger pour. And it's kind of the same thing. It's, it looks like a funnel to a degree, and you put potatoes or anything in it, and it's got a spinner, and it basically plows it through through the holes, right? And it makes it kind of mashed, but finer. And so they call it a ricer. Um, and it, 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 there's a few different terms for it, but taking parsnips and, and running those through a ricer and making basically a parsnip mashed potato. Same concept, heavy cream, salt and pepper, a little garlic powder, uh, and some butter and blend it right in. You can always add a little cheese uh, if you want to kind of bring it to that route. Another cool thing is, is adding it to like cheesy grit, uh, cooking out a, a bigger style grit, not the fine grit like, like cream of wheat, but a bigger, a bigger grain of of grit and cooking those down and doing basically a, a simple cheese sauce in your grits is also awesome uh, to go with that bear as well. That spice is so, uh, that coffee, that coffee spice is so robust in a way that you got to put a pretty dominant feature with it where anything cheesy, potato, starchy runs really well. And just a real earthy uh, root vegetable does great with it as well. Uh, I hope I'm kind of going down the road that you were looking for here. Oh yeah, this uh, is beautiful, man. It's okay. like uh, it's 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 just I appreciate you're the first actual professional chef out there. I cook a lot too. Is for actually the last two years I've I've started kind of started a tradition because my home club here is like 30 minutes away here, and it's for the HGA shoot. So July, literally the same weekend as the show one, I will be having on that Friday. I took the day off. The last couple of years I've I've worked. From home and then i've just kind of made all the meat and stuff like that but i usually put together a massive meat buffet where i have mm. smoked ribs smoked chicken grilled steak uh and also backstrap and one year i even did a uh, smoked pike that didn't Ooh, turn yeah. out very well it didn't turn out very well because i had a lot of why why bones in it it's like i didn't bring it up to temperature it, it didn't get what i was looking for it cooked right but it didn't deliver what i wanted to so i didn't do it again I've been experimenting, and for all my years, I just really like cooking. Needless to say, now I'm, now I want to move on to your caribou recipe. So now, this caribou that you created this recipe around was this something that you had, had a chance to hunt at one point in time in your life? A friend of mine, Mike Morrow, who used to help me produce my Wilderness Attitude podcast many years ago, actually was the one that was able to go up and harvest this caribou, and he gave me a bunch of it because he. I mean, he eats a lot of what he gets, but he knew that I would, you know, do this shit up and that I would, you know, <laughs> and that I would eat it. And I told him that I didn't have any, you know, I was like, I really want to, I really want to see what I can do with this stuff. And it was really important to me um, that some of the different cuts he gave me, but he gave me a bunch of sirloin and 
you know, here I was looking at this meat and I cooked a couple pieces of it. And I, it's a real sweet meat in my opinion with great game flavor, uh, but doesn't hold a high level of moisture when you cook it. Okay. Zero fat. It, it could take a bold flavor as well and do a great, and I don't know. I just, I thought to myself, you know, I, I've, had worked in a Mediterranean style restaurant for quite some time. And I had really liked what I had tried in some Oaxacan recipes. And so I just thought that that would, that that would work, that it, it that it could play. And so I just decided, okay, you know, I'm going to try this recipe and we'll see how it shakes out. Basically an Oaxacan spice blend is a, is, primarily some of your same basics, right? You got your onion, your garlic powder, your, your dry mustard, your chili powders. But the big thing that changes this recipe is, is oregano, right? So a high level of oregano within your spice blend. And so it gives it that floral ability a little bit with the oregano. It gives it that oregano base, but you think it's going to be Italian to some degree, but it's not because you're adding enough, you know, chili, red chili flavors in there to really set the baseline tone for it. Now you could do the, you could do the coffee blend recipe. I give you this all the same, but I kind of find that the coffee takes away the real abundance of the oregano part. Okay. So this is, it turns into the Oaxacan spice blend. It is made, it's a wet rub, okay? So um, it's not a dry rub, it's a wet rub, it's a marinade, if you will, that you're gonna kind of throw this meat in, but it's thick enough that it'll adhere to the meat when you when you cook it. And so basically the Oaxacan style is to be cooked with onions and bell peppers, and then it's you, you can usually give it thrown over rice or just stuffed in a tortilla, so to speak. And so my play on it was throwing it on saffron rice. So I would cook um, white basmati rice. I would influence it with a little bit of paprika and olive oil, salt, pepper, and excuse me, saffron. And so saffron just adds another floral element, um, obviously, which is what it is. It's, it's, it's the flavorful part is the threads that they pull out of the saffron flour. And it's also, it'll color the, it'll, they're orange, but in the end, they color your rice yellow. So if you've ever eaten seafood paella, it's the same thing. It's, it's colored with saffron. Um, some people use food coloring and other things, but an authentic version is going to have little tiny little orange little strings in it, if you will, from the saffron flowers. And now it's not cheap. Saffron. Gosh, I haven't bought any saffron in a long time, but I mean, when I used to buy it by the ounce, it was $130 to $170 an ounce for, for saffron. And so it's a very delicate flavor, but as a foundational delicate floral flavor underneath an awesome spice blend um, and peppers and onions, it, it just sets that balance out that just is really, really delicious. Um, and so, as you can see, I like working with a lot of bold flavors um, in some meats, uh, but um, but I'm I'm a I'm a fan of red chili powder of all kinds. Um, 
you know, Chipotle is my, my favorite chili there is. You know, and, uh, another recipe that's kind of ringing to me that I think really plays really well, and it's one that I do in hunting camp. I, I chef in a couple hunting camps, um, and I do, I do it, you know, I do high-end cooking in these camps, lamb chops and pork loin and, and ribeyes, and, you know, like I don't do, you know, enchiladas and spaghetti and chili, and, you know, I, I'm doing single cuts of meat, veg, a great starch, polenta, you know, something awesome. And, but I do serve a lot of sauces with everything I do. And some, you know, a lot of dudes are like, well, I just want, you know, just give me meat, salt, and pepper, right? And it's funny that even guys I have in camp, they're like, no problem, no problem. I'll give you salt and pepper, great steak, you'll love it. But here's a little sauce on the side, I want you to give her a shot. And typically, they're all into the sauce. You know, that's something that just kind of comes from my chefing background of just throwing that, you know, I learned from some great sauciers and um and that's where you got the value in your in your in your meal right you could if you add a sauce to it then you could add five more dollars to the plate even though you only got 50 cents of sauce on it um because it's just a it's a professional element um that ties the whole plate together another recipe that we do um as i do uh pork loin and autobotto and autobotto is a very simple recipe that is brown sugar chili powder lime juice and garlic and you take that and you make it into a paste you rub it on just about anything but i think it pairs really well with a white meat like pork a chicken even frog legs if you will it goes well with so or gator is another thing it goes well with so i think that uh and that's something you gotta you gotta rub it in it you gotta marinate it it gets a little goopy starts kind of pasty but gets watered out from the because it kind of sucks some of the water out of the meat and goes, and then it takes the flavor in. And it's something that you want to grill because when you grill it, it brings the caramelization out of that sugar and that chili powder. And it makes this crust and this, even the burnt adobo is where it's at. Like, you know, the grill marks is like, it has a different distinct flavor. You know, it's almost like uh, getting uh, burnt tips off of brisket right it's like it's tender it's it's well cooked but it but the flavor is phenomenal so and then i serve that with an apricot chutney which is i take apricots and raisins and soak them in water overnight um just cover them with that and and then you add a little bit more orange you add some orange juice some orange zest lemon zest a little bit of lime juice um, some bell peppers, some jalapenos, um, all diced real fine and, and throw it in and cook it down and then a little bit of sugar that kind of basically makes, you know, like a, a chunky uh, chutney is what we call it, right? And it's a, a nice, uh, real springy, sweet, citrusy sauce with chunks of apricot and pepper and, you know, and raisin and, and that paired with that charred out of bottle is just absolutely to die for that's one of my all-time favorites i actually learned that recipe that's not my very own recipe i learned that from a great chef back in the 90s it is actually a dish that was taken to the james beard foundation in 1991 when the james beard foundation did a southwest themed event and even bobby flay was the appetizer at that event and I didn't get to personally go hit that event, but I was working at the restaurant with Chef Marianne Baines when she went. 
and that's just a an amazing dish. And she served it with a with a black bean chili. Uh, so you fan out that pork loin, and we served it medium rare. Um, pork is something that should be eaten medium rare or medium. Um, there hasn't been cases of trichinosis and mass-produced pork in 70 years. I think people want to cook pork to death, and that's the worst thing you could do. So we'd fan that out, put a little bit of that chutney over the top. We'd serve it with black bean chili, which is really simple. I mean, you can, you know, even kind of a ripped-off version of that, you can buy just black beans in a can, strain them out, throw them in a pot, add some bell peppers, some jalapenos, some chili powder, garlic powder, onion powder, uh, a little bit, of, you know, a little bit of fresh water, just to kind of cook it down, keep it nice and yummy. Um, and then we used to serve it with creme on fresh, which was, which is basically soured sour cream and buttermilk that you set out at room temp or a little bit warmer in room temp in a bowl, and you just like kind of let it curdle. And it's kind of a soury uh, sour cream, if you will. Like I don't know. I mean, basically, if you whipped up buttermilk and sour cream together, it's the same flavor, but it just has a little bit more tinge to it, if you will. Um, and not because it's bad, but <laughs> just because. The flavors, when they're given a little bit of time to ferment together, it creates its own flavor. But I just do a little bit of sour cream or a little bit of Asiago cheese is really killer on top of the black bean chili. Because um, Asiago cheese has a little bit of a nutty flavor, and it's a dry a dry cheddar. And so it's really nice on top of black beans, too. So I can get your recipes on all this stuff for you to throw in, and you'll, you'll be stoked. You know, it gives you a, a nice crossover of, you know, being able to utilize these on any meat, really. I mean, like I mentioned, the Autobotto is great on white meat, but the Ohakan spice blend that I use and in the coffee rub that I use, you know, I use the coffee rub on a lot of stuff, elk and deer. My kids love it. People really like it. It's a great, it's a great versatile rub. I would suggest you buy all this stuff and blend it and have a tall container and and make it a staple in your pantry because once you try it, you'll love it. It's just a awesome to have. That's amazing, man. I appreciate the wealth of knowledge you provided us. And it's like, I almost kind of wish we did. We had a camera on top of you watching you make all this stuff. Cause it just sounds so amazing, especially the saucier, the building, make the sauce, the coffee sauce. I mean, it just sounds amazing and how you put everything all together and the way the story comes out, comes together with it. Cause it's like, I always find, once when, when a chef puts something together, I always find it's like it's telling us a story. It's like it's wandering through a a land that you never experienced before. Especially when you have this expertise, like to, to share. I mean, this is just amazing. I appreciate the the information. Hey, you're very welcome. And I mean, you know, I at one point in time I had some of this recorded. I put some of this stuff up through Wilderness Attitude a long time ago, but I couldn't tell you. I don't think I own any of it anymore. I, I couldn't even begin to look through what hard drive would even have it. But, you know, I um, it's something I've always given a little thought of doing more of, to be honest. I mean, you know, last year when I was on the road with, uh, with Mountain Archery Fest, I did a bunch of these recipes for my crew. Had a great time just kind of experimenting with that again and doing a few things. And it ended up leading me to chefing in this coos deer camp for antler canyon outfitters that uh, he gives me a hunt every year and then my way to kind of pay him back is like look let me come cook for the crew and the paid people you got coming and the giveaway person who won so you don't have to pay a chef you know a couple grand 
I mean, you gave me a couple thousand dollars with a hunt. Let me come and do this for you. And I went and did this last August and had a great time with him. And next thing I know, I've this, this fall, I, I'm going to go work for a big camp and, um, and kind of get back into my roots of cooking again. Uh, I stepped away from it for a really, really long time. It's been really 25 years, 27 years since I've been in a kitchen doing this. And uh, but I had so much fun in camp just kind of bringing my recipes. I mean, I got, I've got three ring binders full of recipes from my career. I think I have three of them total, three, three inch binders full of recipes, you know, that were either given to me or I acquired from kitchens or stuff that I've done myself. And, um, I mean, at this point in time, I've been in five, five published cookbooks at this point. Um, wow. That's, it's quite a re reputation right there. You, you, you got a good reputation when you put your own out. That's what I say. Like when you can finally put one out that's got, you know, a collective body of work from just yourself, then you're, then you're, uh, then you're, you've reached that point. But for me, uh, humbly speaking, like I really enjoy cooking and I think people should really embrace it and really try to, to experiment. You know, there's lots of great cookbooks out there that even I've learned from. You know, like making my bear brats, I, you know, I got a charcuterie book that I learned stuff from. Uh, even Stephen Ranella had a book that he had out. I took a, a recipe out of this charcuterie book and, and a blend of his recipe, and I blended it together, and then I started adding cream to my brats and doing some different things like that from what I'd learned from a chef before and kind of created my own beer, bear brat. And, man, they're they're amazing. Like they're, they're to die for. And I don't make that many of them. So it's like, anytime anybody gets wind that I'm making bear brats, it's like, knock, knock. Remember me? I want some bear brats. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, there's, I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to do this again and come on with, you know, a few more specifics. You kind of hit me up with this today and I'm, I'm halfway across the country. I don't have any of my stuff with me or I'd just be able to hold up the recipe for you to see on the camera. Well, I didn't know you didn't get the email until literally today. Cause I mean, I sent it that the day we, you and I talked, I sent it, right. but it's like a, for some odd reason, I don't know what's with these filters, but they always send zoom calls to the spam filters. I should have followed up with you. Hey, did you get my email and double check your spam filters? Almost need to put that as a, as a precursor when I'm texting somebody to set it all up. Yeah, that, That's my fault. Cause otherwise you would, you would have been prepped. Cause I said, we, we set this up back in February 3rd. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, I totally missed it. And um, and then it was like, I knew we were going on today. And then we were on Instagram and you're like, hey. and I was like, hey, I assumed you sent me an invite by now, right? And I was like, did you send me an invite? You're like, yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> I was like, holy crap. No, I'd love to do it again sometime. Um, I've got um, I've got a ton of this that I'd love to offer to your listeners, man. I, uh, I just, I love when people cook for themselves. I love seeing people do something better. I mean, I was even talking with Jay Carvel the other day about from first form outdoors. I was totally, he put this story up and he took, he took deer loins and he literally cut these beautiful steaks out of this deer loin. And then he butterflied every single one of them to cook. And I was all, what are you doing, man? Like, why would you butterfly them? And he's like, well, that's how my grandpa taught me to do it. And I'm like, no, man, no, no, <laughs> don't do that, dude. I'm like, Look, cut them in one inch, one half inch medallions, cook each side for this long, 
Throw it in the oven for this long. Let it rest for this long. You're going to It's going to be medium rare. It's going to be delicious. It's going to be juicy. I'm like, good Lord, why would you take the most fine cut and butcher it down to where it's, you know, like a thin pork chop? I'm like, oh. And so I love giving the information. That's all. I, I love I love cooking. I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm super stoked for me that I kind of got back in the, in the camp because it's reinvigorated me to kind of bring that out. And, you know, and I, I quit doing the shot cotton trap barbecue in 17. That was our last year we did it. And I really kind of miss it. You know, we do everything mountain lion. We do, I, I mean, it just didn't matter. I mean, I even had a guy offer me a horse um, that was dying. I need it. Yeah, I almost, I, I just, did, it just didn't come together. But, you know, every year I used to do like a surprise meet and not label it in, in, <laughs> in, my, in my spread. And people would try it. I think mountain lion was the one that caught everybody off guard, man. Like when I, when I threw some mountain lion out there, I actually had a, Jacob's grandpa made a recipe that was, um, it's, uh, it's called Chico's. And basically you take a dried sausage, dried beans, dried corn, dried, everything's dried. And you basically just throw it in a pot, fill it with water, and you cook it real slow for a couple of days. And that's all there is to it. Um, and then you season it just a little bit at the end before you serve it. It was mountain lion sausage. And we served that up. And, dude, that, that was so good. Dude, that crock pot was emptied, man. I mean, like, <laughs> it got scarfed down as the mystery meat. And then at the end, people were asking, what was in the crock pot? What was in the crock pot? And I tell them that it was mountain lion sausage. And they're like, I ate kitty cat. Holy crap. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, mean some, I converted a lot of people in that, uh, in that event we used to do vegans who really, they would even tell me they're like, you know what? I don't eat meat the rest of the year, but when I come here, I eat everything you make because it's delicious, but it's just not where I sit, but it really opened their eyes to the fact that like some of them started hunting. Some of them started appreciating, you know, where we were coming from and what we were doing. And, um, and then a lot of people got to learn how to cook wild game a little bit better because a lot of people just want to cook it to death or they don't want to care for it properly in the beginning. I mean, I just can't tell everybody how important that piece is. You know, when I trim my meat, dude, I take everything off of it. All the silver, all that sinew, all that joint stuff, all the fat, like I, none of that gets wrapped in my stuff. And, um, and I could even do a whole nother segment and tape it for you where, how I think people should wrap their meat. Like, you know, there's a certain way that I wrap my meat. I double, I double wrap it in plastic and I single wrap it in butcher and I can pull meat out four years later. No problem. Five years later, no problem. It is good to go. And I did that last year for my guys on the road. I had a piece that was from 18, a piece that was from 20, and a piece that was from 22. All, all elk roasts and you put them right next to each other and I'm like can you tell me which one of these are from 17 and which one's from 22 and you can't tell nice so what's, what's, your, what's your thoughts on uh, uh, vacuum sealing wild game so I like vacuum sealing um, I, think it's, I think it's a good thing to do uh, I don't think it's the complete protective package I think if you vacuum seal it's something that you should eat sooner than later um, but a lot of people think you vacuum seal it could last longer I think there needs to be more element in between the meat and the outside. So like the way I wrap things, 
for the most part, double wrapping it. You basically have eight to 10 layers of saran wrap around every part of that meat. And then the way I butcher paper, you've got two more layers of butcher paper around the whole thing. So you basically got a solid 10 layers of wrap around that meat. Um, now I do, you know, that could be disputed on that. People could bring out science and facts or whatever. That's just how I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, now my hamburger grind, I do in um, vacuum seal every time. And that's because I'll do a pound, pound and a half or two pounds because I had a big family. So everything was a two pound pack, right? So, and I lay it long and I make it flat. I make it, you know, I make it, you know, as, as flat as that. Right. And then I got these great little baskets that go in and they basically can just, they stack in there nice and easy in these little baskets. And then when you want to thaw that hamburger, dude, you just throw it in, in cold water and it's thawed in eight, 10, 15 minutes max. I mean, it's, it's ready to go, you know, but when you got a block of burger this big, you know, it's been pumped in a single plastic bag, like that stuff don't, it one, that stuff's so thin that you catch it anywhere on a rack in your freezer or, or whatever, or even if it falls out on the ground in your shop on the concrete, it opens the plastic, right? And I just think those big old logs and ground beef is a pain in the ass. So for me, making it flat, and it, man, it's just, it stacks well, and it thaws really fast, and it's, you know, it's that go-to protein uh, for the family on the go. I do the exact same thing. I, I make it real thin, and it's easier to stack, and easy to go through it, because like, we all know what the prices of everything being so expensive. So when my wife and I go out and buy stuff or when they, when it comes to the sale, like I bought 40 pounds of chicken just because I can't be five bucks for a quarter. And I can do a lot of, a lot of things with that piece of meat, like from smoking it to brining it to throwing in the sous vide and, and just getting it for five bucks for 10 pounds. You, you can't, you got to take advantage of those opportunities. We'll uh, put it in um, vacuum seal bags, but it's something that's not going to be held for a long period of time. We'll eat, we'll eat all this through the next several months between the venison in my freezer, the beef and whatever else I decided to procure. Yeah. And, it, and most of the meat that I get from the butcher, even, you know, when I take a cow in and get it done, I ask them to do my beef that way. Um, it costs me more money, but I don't care. Um, it's just, it, sometimes that convenience is totally worth it. it. Makes it easier on the wife and even the kids, if they want to just, you know, throw burgers together. Because when you're trying to teach your kids how to eat healthier, it's got to be. It's got to be easier. It's got to be fast, and so that is just a key thing that for me works. But yeah, you know, buying buying bulk meat and throwing it in and throwing it in vacuum seal is killer. And and I use vacuum sealing for those simple reasons, but I also use it even when I thaw meat. So if I want to do a marinade that's more of a vinegar based or a liquid based or something like that, I throw it in the bag. Throw the meat in the bag. And I vacuum seal it. And when it does that, man, it pulls that right in the meat. You can marinate something for a couple of hours instead of overnight if you use your vacuum sealer to help you accomplish that. Poke some holes in the meat and the chicken just a little bit. Just give it an, an opportunity to introduce. And it's, it's a game changer. Like, you know, even like you're brining, you can brine in a vacuum seal and it's just way faster as well. And then you just take it, and then you just take it right out of the fridge and drop it right in your sous vide. Just like that, and cook it right in the marinade in the sous vide. Pull it out, mark it up, bring it up. You know, boom, on the plate for sure. Man. I like doing it for doing it for, for exactly for Brian's. I mean, I had a, a neck meat off of a massive bucket shot a couple of years ago, and I just put uh, I used a, a Bushard based 
uh, as one of the main ingredients for and with soy sauce and in a barbecue sauce and a bunch of spice threw it all in there and i let it marinate for i don't know 12 hours or so and it it, it was just so delicious flavor got in the neck meat so well and it, it's neck meat is such an underrated cut of meat especially if you do low and slow oh yeah just it was i i fed i fed uh, at least not been i fed nine people off of that one piece of meat oh yeah and you know and, and when you do it like that it just oh, melts yeah. in your mouth i mean it is tender meat is you just got to work through a lot of that connective tissue exactly right it. and that's part of your meat care in the beginning if you're if you're doing it right from the get-go then you know it's not that tough grisly side of the of the animal it's it's awesome i mean killer chili meat great for taco meat it goes a long way making chili I mean, it's one of my favorite cuts. So many people leave neck meat out there and rib meat. And, you know, so many people leave so much meat on the bone because they just have this perception that it's not any good. But all of it is usable. It's all just in how you do it. Like, even when I would butcher deer and elk for some people, like, I understand the cuts. I know the name of each cut. I know the best way to cook that cut. And so I would, like, you know, take a certain steak and, and put it on there, and I'd be like, okay, how do you want a package for you? For two people, four people? Then I'd package it like that, and I'd actually put it on there. Cook it fajita style, right? This is stew meat. This is hamburger. Um, grill these steaks. Pan sear this, put it in the oven. You know, make a you know a quick roast out of it. Or this cut needs to go in the crock pot. You need to cook this thing for 10 hours and break it down into a great pot roast. You know, I would really write on the package how to cook it because otherwise they get to a point where they cook it and they're like, this sucks. Like, you know, like, and it's just because certain grains of the meat are longer strand, more compact strands, tighter, looser, you know, and they all deserve to be treated a little bit differently. And most people just don't, they can't conceptualize that. So you just got to kind of help them a little bit to understand. And even when I have someone sitting next to me, I like to teach people how to butcher their deer or their elk. I'll actually tell them, look, you never done this before? Great. Hang in my meat locker. Come back on this day. Come back, and I'm going to walk you through it. I'll show you exactly how I do it, how I wrap it, what these each cuts kind of mean, the, explain to them the different styles of meats and how the best way to utilize oh, sure. it is. Yeah. You know, and that I love doing that. I love teaching people how to how to do that because – when they get to that point where then when they're cooking it, they're killing it, they're cleaning it, they're cooking it, they're seeing the end product, then they come full circle. And it also helps create that emotional connection. Um, and that's where it's at. That's the real trophy. It's not the horns. It's not the mount. It's That's the meat. And I got to, I got the privilege to teach uh, best friend and his dad and his brother how to break that meat because they've always, they've my buddy's dad's done really well in life, so we always had the butcher take care of everything for him. Well, then, well, now the butcher doesn't take care of it. And so I got a chance to go there. I showed them how to break everything down, showed them how to pull the hide off and such, because they would just take, gut them, throw in the back of the truck, take it there, and they do it all themselves. So I showed them how to do all, I mean, it was so much fun. Plus, the upset was I got to add the pick of the meat. So I picked this 35-inch long backstrap. I was like, this is my this is my payment to putting in 20, I think it took us 12 hours per buck to break it all down, because these things were not small. They're pretty big. I'll say I got a picture of them, but man, they were just so well eaten off of me. But it fed, I think those two deer probably fed at least 25 people uh, between all the family members and such. That's where it's at. You know, and then I'm always trying to let, I'm always trying to teach people to hang their meat longer too. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll 
I'll kill an elk. I'll take the loins, inners and outers, and I'll do those right away, right? Get them done, put them away. I let my fronts go two weeks, except for the, except for the calves and the forearms, right? I take those off right away. They just go get cut up to go into grind. But then I take my fronts and I let them hang two weeks. I'll let rears hang a whole month. Wow. 41, degree, 41 degrees, less than 20% humidity for 30 days. And I mean, no mold on the outside. They'll calf, they'll dry calf about you know, a little less than a quarter inch thick. So you'll lose a quarter inch of meat all the way around the outside. And this is bone in. Okay. So, and then I let them mold on the outside, not black, not black mold, but they, creates kind of a dry green mold if you will and then basically you're just you know while it's hanging i just carve that cap layers off and then dude i'm down to the ruby red meat and i mean like i'll try to find some pictures to send to you because the flavor of that dry aged meat is incredible and people think that's gross or this or that or whatever but i'm telling you and they're like, yeah, but you're wasting a lot of meat. No, not really. No, because all I do, I cut all that off. I throw it outside. The sun hits the cap. It kills all the mold. And my dogs eat it to death. And they love it. And it doesn't bother them one bit. Okay? Not at all. They don't get the shits. They don't, nothing happens to them. They don't get sick. Good. <laughs> it works out. It works out great. People think, you know, that you can't do that. And you can. And then even then, I can pull meat out after I froze it and let it sit in the fridge for another week. No problem. So, I mean, even Maurice last year, Maurice hung his rears um, because he forgot about them. <laughs> we'll just be honest. He hung his rears for two and a half months in the meat locker, and I'd even turned the meat locker off. Oh. But it was cold enough. I mean, my meat locker is, uh, is a concrete room, 12-inch thick concrete walls uh, with a simple man door. Uh, insulated man door and I got a three fan industrial kitchen refrigeration unit inside but there's a certain point where the temperature was probably I mean it was probably 41 degrees in there for about a month and five weeks and then after that it got cold and then I shut it off and I mean the temperature was probably stayed below 40 probably more like 33 32 right on the edge of freezing probably more than likely for a good month it just stayed in that stasis where it wasn't it wasn't getting worse. It wasn't getting, it was fine. I couldn't believe it. When I walked in there and I was like, oh shit. And I grabbed a knife and cut and I was like, wow, it's still good, man. That's crazy. Um, maybe lucky, maybe lucky. I wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not recommending that one, but a, a solid month on rears will work. No problem. Is there any, uh, we, we haven't covered that you want to say before we close out? No, I just, not really. I think we had a great conversation and I look forward to maybe another opportunity to do this and uh, definitely and bring, bring some more of what I got to the table. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Yeah, me too, Brian. I was, I just, I just like to shut up and just listen because that's just the best way to learn. And I'm looking forward to hopefully crossing paths that you, with you at, uh, at Beaver. You will cross paths with me at Beaver. I'll be there. You'll be there. I think it's uh, destiny. Yes. Yes. I, is, I all have to say is thank you to, to Ben from Sodak Horizon because he's the one that dropped this into my head here. We, we, were, we were planning since, since Thanksgiving, like what event we're going to be able to hit because 
my summers get busy with HGUSA and plus all the, I, I travel between Minnesota and Iowa and Illinois and I'll shoot these, these, these fun 3d shoots and such. And this year, um, Chris Ham is only doing four events. So it opened me up to be able to go out there. And also I got, um, two big fishing trips coming up to Okaboji one, one in May. And then I turn around and go back there in October. And it's like, man, Pat last, last October we caught easy. No, no BS and at least almost 600 fish. Now keep in mind though, but we this is between nine guys. We caught a lot of probably like illity bitty ones. Yellow bass is a, is a they're they're unlimited, so it doesn't really matter. But that's what a lot of but the nice thing is all of us came home with a, a limit of crappie, which was pretty impressive. But man, it's just that's cool. it's it's a complete stag party. The amount of BS that goes on and like the the amount of beer we drink and we'll we'll be flying fish. Well, usually we have let's see here, the nine of us. We had five of us flying, and then and then four of them were either were either getting us beer, or they were pulling all the the flays and getting all dressed and clean. So we had one guy upstairs washing everything while well, all of us. So I'm out there fl- flying, and like part of my getting by the strip was to be able to flay fish. And my dad watched me flay 89 fish in a matter of like five hours. I went through a 12 pack of Budweiser. I was feeling pretty at the end of that one, but 89 fish. Between the three of us, because my my at the time it was my girlfriend. That's my bonding time with my dad. He set he turned seventy this year, and that's what we do. We we that's what we spend a lot of time fishing. So this year it will be the first year he was he wants me to drive the boat. So this way then he doesn't have to do it so much. He can spend all the time fishing, and I have to deal with all everything. But right. it's like he's right. it's basically just like he's passing the torch. These guys have been getting together for almost twenty five years consistently doing a biannual trip. Anywhere between, well, pre-pandemic, they were had anywhere up to 17 to 20 guys. Post-pandemic, everybody realized how precious time was, and now it's like they cap it at nine because all the other cabins are filled up. Wow. Yeah, I tell you, that's awesome that they've continued that heritage, and it's awesome that he's passing down this captain torch to you, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, pretty stu- I'm pretty stoked. That's cool. That's pretty cool. Now, I'll tell you, I could use a lot of lessons in cooking when it comes to warm water fish. That's something that I don't have. Like you talk about crappie, bass, you know, stuff like that. Like that's not my world. I've I've always been. I've either fished salt or I have fished uh, cold water trout, that kind of thing. Um, even pike. You know, I mean, we have a lot of pike where we live in some of our lakes, and it's just never been a fish that I've taken on to cook. So, you know, I'll have to tune into some of your other episodes and see if I can learn a few things in that realm. I tell you what, it's with you with your knowledge and. Make a Southwest coleslaw with pike, you won't regret it. You will not regret it. It's my favorite go-to. If I'm cooking pike for anybody for the first time, I will I'll actually bake the pike in like a in a, like a mm-hmm. uh, lemon pepper bath, and then I'll break up. Like if it depends on how lazy it was when I was flaying the fish up. If there's white bones, and I'll take my fingers and just get into it and break it all up and pull the white bones out and put it. It's a little bit more TLC, but in the end, it still will deliver the same profile. But if I'm actually putting my time into it i'll cut the five fillets off of it and this way then it's just like it's just easier to eat that way but man it's it is a great way to introduce anybody to pike and it's a very fun flavor because it's got that oil to it got that high omega-3s you can't go wrong with it man it's so much fun that sounds delicious i'll have to hit you up for that recipe man definitely i'll have to give it a shot and i and I, you know and i like smoked fish too like you're saying smoked pike that sounded when you said that 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 got my attention like that sounds good mm. i did it on a cedar plank Smoked it for about two and a half hours, but I didn't let it get dry enough. I got it to where it was cooked, 
But what ended up happening was it was my first run with cooking for everybody, and nobody told me when they were going to arrive. The, my idea was, because they were going to be showing up at 7, so I, my idea was to eat shortly thereafter, because a lot of these guys are either, one guy was coming from Texas, one guy was coming in from Philadelphia, and then some of them were local, but I didn't know their time frame when they were going to be there, so it's like, it was just kind of a guesstimation. But this year... I'm I'm taking the whole day off, and I'm gonna probably do that as well because it's like I want to. I got um, caught a buffalo, big old sheep head. It was like probably, oh, I think it was I think it weighed like 15, 13 pounds, and all I was running with thirty inch thirty thirty yards of line on my five foot three uh, spinning reel. And that's it. So it's like we were just, all of a sudden something kicked into it. I told my I was yelling at my dad's like you you get that net. So I'm just reeling reeling it in, and all of a sudden I pull this big old thing up, and and it's get it's got this purple meat on the inside of it and a lot of recipes on pinterest were saying like smoke it's like all right that is what i'm going to try i'm gonna i'm gonna smoke it before i serve it uh, serve it to anybody else to see if i like it because it's got big bones in it so which is makes it makes yeah. it good for smoking that's why i don't know why people give carp such a bad name because smoked carp is absolutely delicious because you can actually get a a pork like texture from the meat after you after you brine it and after you smoke it, but some but it's like got to be careful because it's like I've had it too salty. So I like to go with like a little bit more of a sweet Jamaican jerk. So this way you get a nice wholesome flavor, but then you get a good spice. Yeah, dude, that sounds delicious. You got my mouth out there, man. <laughs> sounds great. I have to figure out how to make it to your house for some fish one of these days, dude. That sounds delicious. Oh, definitely. Usually when I do my podcast, I it turns into a, a cooking event. Depending on what time of year it is, well, I'll either cook you fish or I'll cook you venison or I'll cook you some other meat. And then we do the podcast live. And then if you if you are a whiskey drinker, beer drinker, or if you just like to drink water, it's a whole process of building the the rapport with my guests. Yeah, dude, that sounds amazing. Sounds like a great time. Oh, it is. It's a blast. Well, I'll I'll earn an invitation one of these days. I'll I'll make you go. Oh, over. definitely. If you come listen to these things, I'm literally right off I-90, so it's not hard to find me. Sweet. <laughs> I know where I-90 is. I've traveled almost the whole thing across this country. So. Oh, yes. I've been from both ends, and I've you probably know how many times you cross the Lewis and Clark once you uh, as you're going westbound. It's a lot. You ever, you ever count it? Yeah. No. Okay. Uh-uh. How many times is it? You cross it 17 times. No shit. All across I-90, yep. Well, I'll be down. I, yeah, I knew it was a lot, but I didn't think it was that much. I thought it was around 10, maybe. No, no, it's, yeah, I didn't know, I didn't believe it either until the guy I met when I was out hitchhiking back in 2008, he said, we're going to be coming up across the Lewis and Clark River, and I want you to count how many times you go across it, and I'll tell you at the end if you were right. I'll be down. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. You learn something every day. At least... Once you get outside of Sioux Falls, or once you get on the outside of South Dakota, I ninety is beautiful. <laughs> it's kind of like I eighty yeah, going yeah. through Nebraska. I can to that, I eighty is just as boring. It's the worst part is when you hit Iowa and you go to you go you go from seventy five eighty all the way down to sixty five. It's like what the fuck, Iowa? Get your shit together. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I've only I've only really done I I eighty going westbound, and I remember I picked up a I picked up a Harley in Beloit, Wisconsin. Uh, a road king that I bought and I cruised down and I caught, I caught 80 and came across it. And it was like, dude, it was in, it was in August and it was brutal, dude. It was like hundred degrees, 90 degrees, nine percent humidity, like blowing through freaking stinky ass corn fields with the smell like manure. You'd hit a dip. 
and think they'd get cooler. No, it got hotter. <laughs> it was insane. And then we got in Nebraska, and it was tornadoes through the whole state, coming back, bombing underneath the overpasses, trucks getting flipped over from tornadoes. Then I finally got into my own state of Colorado. It was beautiful. <laughs> it was crazy. Uh, I'll never forget that ride. But anyway, I know that I know that one far too well. I've done a lot of traveling back and forth on 80 and 90. Well, not one way on 80, both ways on 90. A ton on 70. I mean, had family that lived in North Carolina. Used to drive that back and forth all the time. I, now, anything I've ever bought in my life, Jeff, a new car, a new rig, a new motorcycle, it was always back east. I always bought back east and drove it back west. That was... I'm surprised you just didn't go south and go to Arizona or go into Texas, get something that wasn't had not touch salt. Yeah, you know, you're right. Because when I picked up rigs, I could get, well, I, I could always get good buys in the East, right? I mean, and, and I was always looking late model stuff because I didn't want EGRs and all that kind of stuff. And everything had to be heavy spec. And a lot more heavy spec gets uh, sold on the other side of the Mississippi. There's not as much dual frame heavy spec stuff in the West. Out there, the tolls on these trucks, they run them heavy. They run them extra axles. They run as much load as they can because they get taxed on everything they do so much. So the payloads have to be that much greater to be able to afford to do it. And then in the West, we can just stretch things out, run less axles, and we can do it until we don't have to run this heavy spec stuff. So that's kind of what always led me to doing that. But a few pieces, but I did buy some new vehicles back East that just, it just, how it worked out. I don't know. I, I always looked in, you never go to California for nothing, mm -hmm. ever. Like, you just don't do that. I mean, because all the emissions control and just all the taxes and all that crap. I never did that. But um, anyway, we're completely chasing skills <laughs> here. Anyway. But anyways, thank you for coming on the podcast. I had a blast. May everybody check out the show notes. You'll be able to find the link to, to mountainarcherefest.com and also be including these recipes once they get them. So they'll be, the, everything will be ready for you for the weekend. So thank you for tuning in to another episode of Bugs America Podcast.